And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Fergus M. Bordewick to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Fergus is a former journalist and now longtime historian. His books include The First Congress, How James Madison, George Washington, and a Group of Extraordinary Men Invented the Government, Bound for Canaan, The Story of the Underground Railroad, and Killing the White Man's Indian, Reinventing Native Americans at the End of the 20th Century. Today, we begin our conversation about his latest book, Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant and the Battle to Save Reconstruction, which is published by Knopf. Fergus, in the preface for Clan War, it's 1870, and a man named Wyatt Outlaw is set upon by his own namesakes. Wyatt Outlaw was a remarkable individual. He was uh, an African-American, a Union Army veteran, whose home was in the town of Graham, North Carolina. And he had served honorably in the Civil War. He came back after the war. He was also a former slave, by the way. And he very quickly rose to become a leader, not just of the African-American community and his part of North Carolina, but an early founder of the Republican Party in that area, which was a biracial party at the time, including both formerly enslaved people, free black people, and many whites, most of them of the poorer classes who were wanted a new beginning in North Carolina, having been essentially excluded during the pre-war years when an oligarchy of wealthy landowners pretty much ran the state. At any rate, he was a natural leader, as well founded a church. He was elected to a town office in Graham. And on that day in uh, 1870, 20 to 30 disguised Klansmen burst into his home tore him quite literally from the arms of his mother and his child, dragged him outdoors in his nightshirt, marched him about a half a mile to the town square, and lynched him from a tree facing the town hall where he served as a member of the town government. And they brutalized his body as it hung there. Townspeople were afraid to take it down for fear of retaliation by the Klan. And I opened the book with this story of Wyatt Outlaw. And his name, by the way, is not an epithet. That was his family name. It was a common name in that part of North Carolina. I opened that because it's a pretty representative example of the terrorism that was perpetrated by the Ku Klux Klan pretty much everywhere in the former Confederate states. The Klan targeted leaders and natural leaders of the black community and white Republicans and black Republicans as well, because their political goal was to destroy the embryonic Republican Party and a two-party system in the South, as well as to, if possible, terrify black Americans into servility. For a group of people who say they're preserving gentility, they were just about the crassest group of people you could imagine. The notion that the Klan was standing up for something, as you said, like gentility or civilized values or Southern womanhood and this sort of thing is, is, is rubbish. It's mostly after the fact claims by defenders of the so-called lost cause. That is to say, the cause of the Confederacy. The Klan's modus operandi was barbaric. It was designed as a terrorist organization after its founding. Its initial founding was uh, 
kind of a funky young men's fraternity. But very quickly, it was taken over by former high-ranking Confederate officers with a deliberate strategy of terrifying free people and white Republicans. And it perpetrated every kind of barbarism that today's terrorist organizations may perpetrate. When we think of terrorism as Americans, we think of strange groups far away with names that are hard to pronounce, like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hamas, and, and so on. The Ku Klux Klan was a homegrown terrorist organization that knowingly practiced terrorism. It was the first terrorist movement in American history, for that matter. They knew what they were doing, and the kind of violence they perpetrated against their victims was horrific, ranging, of course, from beatings of floggings to shootings, lynchings, mutilations, rapes, and things probably I, I don't think I'll, I'll describe in this broadcast because it's some of the things that they did were very upsetting, I think, even to today's ears are perhaps hardened by history. It seems it's not too different from the recent attacks in uh, Israel and the Gaza Strip. Very similar. Very similar. In fact, even identical. Of course, the Klan specialized in attacking unarmed people, usually not only unarmed, but isolated in their homes in the middle of the night. There were daylight attacks, too. They typically attacked in groups of anywhere from 10 or a dozen to 20 or 30, and occasionally many more than that, riding into a an isolated black community or a, up to a an isolated cabin or the home of a white Republican and doing as they did with Wyatt Outlaws, I talked about a few minutes ago, taking that person out into the road, flogging him or her. Yes, women were frequently attacked. Yes, children were attacked. Sometimes children were raped. It's quite appalling. But they were very brave in their own minds, at least, attacking helpless, unarmed people. When much later they faced armed federal troops, they weren't so brave. It brings to mind that quote from the uh, Peruvian military leader Benavides, for my friends, everything, for my enemies, the law. The law was something only to be used against the black population, not against themselves. Yeah, that's entirely true. One reason the Klan was able to get away with as much mayhem as it did, and the Klan's peak years from were from later 1867 to about 1872-73, varied somewhat from place to place. The reason they were able to get away with so much violence was, in fact, they, one, often included in their membership the majority of white male residents in areas where the Klan thrived, sometimes 50, 60, 70 percent in some areas. Two, their way of waging a war of terror scared law enforcement, judges, members of juries, and indeed many members of law enforcement and juries were in fact themselves Klansmen. Those who weren't were terrified of the Klan. So it was almost impossible to prosecute the Klan for anything until the federal government weighed in in force in 1871. And while most joined of their own accord, there were many who were also press-ganged into service for the Klan. Yeah, some were. There's abundant testimony from former Klansmen who'd surrendered or been arrested. Various investigations, the most important of which was a federal investigation in 1871, which interviewed hundreds and hundreds of victims of the Klan and, in quite a few cases, uh, former members. 
And yeah, there were people who said that they joined because if they did not, they would be Ku Kluxed themselves. That's an invented verb that was used at the time. To be Ku Kluxed was to be taken out, flogged, shot, whatever. That's by no means a majority. Most people, as you implied, join voluntarily. But there were some who were press ganged. And ironically, tragically, and sad to say, there were even a few, I emphasize a few, African-Americans who were, let's say, used by the Klan. They rode with the Klan, and they were used as decoys to draw the Klan's victims out of their homes to be more easily captured. They, of course, were people who were press ganged in dire fear of being themselves tortured or murdered by the Klan if they didn't acquiesce. Now, you have a note at the beginning of the book about the difference in our vocabulary usage now as opposed to then. What connotations did the word radical have during the mid-19th century? It's certainly not the same as it does today. I mean, today it tends to imply for most people, I think, extreme leftists. It did not mean that in the 19th century, Civil War, post-Civil War period. It specifically was applied to those Republicans, only Republicans, who were deeply committed to extending civil rights, equal rights to African-Americans, former slaves, and also who supported a strong Reconstruction policy and opposed premature conciliation with the former Confederates. Bear in mind that the Republican Party of that era was the more forward-looking party. Some people might say progressive, but that term wasn't in use at the time. The Republicans were the more forward-looking party. The Democratic Party split in two between North and South since the outbreak of the Civil War. And the, the Southern Democratic Party were primarily ex-Confederates and very reactionary on anything bearing on changing the relationship of the races. The Northern Democratic Party was by no means forward-looking it needed to reunify with the South. So it was profoundly conservative, hostile to Reconstruction and hostile to the extension of equal rights to Black Americans. So the relationship between the two parties was was quite different than one thinks of today. And the radicals were that cutting edge of the Republican Party. So excluding the preservation of slavery, what were concepts that tied the Northern and Southern Democratic parties together? Well, it was, a, frankly, a fairly uncomfortable marriage in many respects. Southern Democratic Party, as I said, was a reactionary party. And its common denominator was essentially race, and you could say racism, a driving imperative to force African-Americans, former slaves, back into something close to slavery. And the Southern Democratic Party and the Northern one used the issue of race to drive a wedge between those whites in the South or even in the North who might favor a vigorous Reconstruction policy or might tentatively favor extending more tolerance toward African Americans. But the United States, and this, this has to be said, it's just a fact, this is not a just an opinion, was so deeply racist in the 19th century. Very, very few Americans were able to transcend that sense of difference between white and black and overcome an ingrained sense of black inferiority. There were many in the Republican Party tried, even amongst radicals. Many were not all that comfortable among black people. So these 
feelings are even stronger among Democrats. Now, the Northern Democratic Party also tended to represent immigrants, more recent immigrants, Irish, Germans, were a very large minority group at that time, working people, and even free labor in the North. There were next to no immigrants, European immigrants in the South. They didn't want to go there. They didn't want to compete with either slave labor before the Civil War or very, very cheap labor by freed people. So immigrants are not an issue in the South. Free labor is is a very ambiguous thing because whites meant it to apply to free white labor and place blacks in another category entirely. And the Southern Democratic Party was led by the old oligarchy. That's to say landowners, but also professional people, opinion molders, people of that sort who were extremely conservative on the issue of race and were not particularly friendly to free labor. So, as I said, the marriage between the Northern and Southern Democratic parties is not all that comfortable, but it's a political necessity on both sides. Now, the book proper opens with General Ulysses Grant taking a tour of the Southern United States a few months after Appomattox Courthouse. And what were his findings? Yeah, well, Grant was the general of all the armies, the commander of all federal armies at that point, by the end of the war. Immensely respected. He's the hero of the war, the man who, who won it for the Union. Andrew Johnson has recently become president. We all know Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in April of 1865. Andrew Johnson becomes president. It's necessary to understand who Johnson was in order to understand what Grant was about at that particular juncture. Johnson was from Tennessee. He was the only senator from a slave state that remained with the Union. He was an ardent Unionist during the war. He served the Union very well as uh, the wartime governor of Tennessee. Lincoln tapped him to become his vice presidential running mate in 1864, which I think it has to be said was among Lincoln's worst mistakes as president. Lincoln's Original vice president was an abolitionist from Maine, a man named Hannibal Hamlin, staunch supporter of the war and of rights for African-Americans. Andrew Johnson supported the Union, but he had no interest in extending rights to African-Americans. He opposed slavery. He'd been a slave owner himself, but reluctantly. And he wanted nothing more to do with advancing the needs or rights of Black Americans after the war. Suddenly, Andrew Johnson is president. Suddenly, he is pressing for a rapid conciliation with the South and certainly sees his future as based in part on the support of white Southerners. Johnson was never a Republican, by the way. He was a Democrat, but picked for political reasons in 1864. So Grant, at this point, is quite willing to follow orders. The president asks him, not orders him, asks him to travel through the South on a tour of observation to see what the attitudes of Southerners are with respect to reunification with the North. It is an extremely quick trip. I think Grant is in the South for no more than three weeks. He is wined and dined and escorted by conservative Southern whites who assure him from one end of the South to the other that there are no problems. White Southerners are already reconciled to reunion. There are no race problems. The former slaves are perfectly fine. And Grant reports back this highly rose-colored version 
of Reconstruction, early Reconstruction in the South, he's missed just about everything important. What's happening is chaos. There is extreme chaos, political chaos, social chaos in the South. Blacks and whites don't know what their relations to each other are going to be. Now emancipation has taken place. What role are free blacks going to have? Black Southerners are eager to assert just their humanity, their humanity. They don't perpetrate violence against anyone, contrary to what laws cause defenders said. But they are asserting themselves, which is a shock to the system for white Southerners. Grant misses all this. There have also been massacres of free people in the South by white mobs. Grant misses it. Now, another U.S. general toured the South around the same time. And how did Carl Schurz's observations differ from those of Grant's? They differed dramatically. Carl Schurz, who used to be famous as an American political figure, has slipped into uh, near anonymity in, in, in recent decades. But at any rate, Carl Schurz was a European radical, that's to say a radical Democrat, who fled Europe in 1848 when democratic revolutions were defeated there, came to the United States speaking barely a word of English. He was a, he was a brilliant individual. He very rapidly learned English became a journalist and a popular orator, and was eventually elected to the U.S. Senate from Missouri. There were a lot of Germans in Missouri who were his main base of support. After having served, yes, as a general, a not very good one, I have to say, a political general in the Union Army during the war. As I said, a journalist. And Schertz travels through the South, makes a much longer and more thorough trip And he is nominally under the auspices of President Johnson, although he's not official. He's also writing articles for newspapers while he's traveling. And he talks to everybody. He talks to ordinary people of all kinds, including African-Americans. And Carl Schurz vacuums up the truth of what's happening in the South. That's to say, where there is violence, he reports it. Where there is vicious menacing racism, he reports it. He talks on riverboats to wealthy whites who say anything should be done to put the blacks back in their place. He acknowledges killings, random killings that are taking place of freed people in many parts of the South. And he brings all this back to Washington, and it's already appeared in newspapers. Johnson, the president, doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to know about it. He completely ignores Schurz. Grant, to his credit, however, pays attention to what Schurz is saying. They weren't friends, but they knew each other. And Grant pretty rapidly recognized that he'd been bamboozled in the South, that he'd been hoodwinked. He realizes that Schurz's report is the accurate one. And it helps turn Grant, one, against President Johnson, whom he realizes is willing to sacrifice the fruits of Union victory in the war for his own political ends. And he also, that is, Grant also becomes much more deeply invested in the fate of the freed people in the South. He's a man with heart. He's a very sensitive individual, unusually so for a high-ranking military man. And from that point on, Grant moves steadily toward an alliance with the radicals and with Black Republicans and white Republicans in the South. It'll transform Grant. To compare these two men who start off in different places in their views of the South right after the end of the war and to see their evolution and 
it's more Grant is amazingly open, will take in new information, and have greater support for African-American rights in the South. And then Schertz says, hey, government needs to stay out of everything and just takes the stance of abandoning people over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, it's quite ironic. They essentially reverse places politically. Schertz, as I said, has been elected a senator from Missouri. He very quickly realizes Missouri being a state that was deeply divided during the war, that if he's going to be reelected to the Senate and continue to build the political career that he aspires to, he's going to need support from Democrats in Missouri. He is ultimately, I think, taken advantage of by Missouri Democrats who suggest that they will support him if he supports rapid conciliation with the South. In the end, they don't. They leave him high and dry. They use him as long as he's useful and then and then drop him. But Schertz, a clever man as he was, didn't really see that happening. I think he was swallowed by his own ambitions, frankly. But Schertz increasingly is looking to build alliances with white Southerners. And those alliances come at the expense of black Southerners. And yeah, Schertz kind of loses interest in the future of the freed people much later in life. Much, much, decades later, he halfway acknowledges his error, but long beyond the point at which it would have done any good. In the interim, he embraces other kinds of issues. He he becomes particularly enamored of the of the issue of civil service reform, which sounds like a dull issue today because uh, we have uh, merit-based civil service and the United States then did not. So it's a fairly hot issue at the time. But he kind of misses or loses the great moral issue and political issue of his time, which is the fate of black Americans in the South. Now, it's ironic that he fled Europe in the revolutions of 1848, which eventually started the long consequences that rolled out into World War II eventually. And that was almost 100 years after the revolutions of 1848. And then it would be America and its civil war and rolling out. And it would be 100 years later when the civil rights movement really takes effect in America and starts to get concrete changes made another 100 years. It's just for humans, these almost seem like geological time spans. Both these men, I think, in their own ways, these men were were people who could foresee the future that was coming. Schertz was a small d Democrat. His party was the Republican Party in, in the U.S., but he foresaw the democratization of society, and he supported it, wrongheaded as he was during Reconstruction. And he certainly saw it in Europe. He was 100 years early. And Grant, too, in a completely different way, in a visceral way, also saw the future within the U.S. of a more equitable society. And he truly, by the end of his terms as president, had worked to establish the kind of recognition of civil rights and the legal enshrinement of civil rights that only came to being in the United States beginning seriously in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Grant was not successful. Ultimately, ultimately, the country turned against Reconstruction. But yeah, these are men who who saw the future, I think, in their own ways. Both of them were people who could live in our own era and see what they had contributed to it. One of Grant's main duties after the war was to return the army to a peacetime footing. And that massive drawdown of troops 
really led to allowing this violence in the South to flourish. Yeah, in July of 1865, just after the end of the Civil War, there are about one million uniformed federal troops in the former Confederate states. That's a pretty large number of people. By 1868, that number is only 12,000, 12,000, which is insignificant spread across 11 states, the 11 states of the former Confederacy. It's a staple of lost cause apologetics for the Confederacy and for the Ku Klux Klan that the South was under military occupation, under the under the tyrannical heel of the federal army and so on during Reconstruction. It's nonsense. It is nonsense that did not exist. 12,000 men spread across 11 states is not an occupation army. Some states, North Carolina, unless I'm mistaken, had, I think, about 300, 300 troops in 1868, 1870. Mississippi, I believe, had as few as about 145 around the same time. And where those troops were, one, they tended to be concentrated in urban areas. And two, they were primarily infantry. They're nearly all infantry. I think anybody might realize it's pretty hard for an infantryman to catch a man mounted on a horse, that's to say a Klansman. So these tiny military forces were pretty nearly impotent to deal with the Klan, besides the problem of there being no political will in Washington to deal decisively with the Klan at that early time. Yeah, so why was that happening? As you said, Grant, as commander of the army, was under tremendous pressure to reduce the size of the military. It cost a fortune to keep all those soldiers in the field. The soldiers themselves desperately wanted to go home after four years of war. Their families wanted them home. The families all voted. So there was no political support for maintaining a real occupation force in the South. And Grant was under constant pressure to reduce the troop numbers even further. So the ability of the federal government to enforce law in the South was close to nil until 1871, when there was a turning point under Grant's presidency. The federal government would be hamstrung throughout this entire period by the inability to appropriate money for the number of troops who were needed. The American Civil War began in earnest on April 12th, 1861. When do you think it might finally be over? <laughs> well, there are different ways of answering that. I think... The war proper with huge field armies contending over in set-piece battles, fighting along a defined front or fronts, really did end in the late spring of 1865. However, the Klan War, and there was a war, was essentially a guerrilla war. It was a guerrilla war against civil institutions, against the, the embryonic Republican Party, against freed people, extended from... 1867 to 1872, 1873. The notion that there was no guerrilla war in the South after the surrender to Appomattox is just not accurate. The guerrilla war was the Klan War. Most Klansmen, not all, were former Confederate soldiers. Many of the others were their younger brothers who weren't quite old enough to be in the army during the war, or their friends or relatives who hadn't actually been in the war. And the Klan, during its heyday, operated like guerrilla cavalry. 
Now, perhaps we'll talk at some point about Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Confederate cavalry general who did much to spread the Klan from 1867 on, whose tactics the Klan pretty much emulated, although it was fighting against unarmed civilians rather than Union troops. So I think the the Klan War was the war after the war. I mean, there are people who would say, well, the Civil War still hasn't quite ended because parts of the country still have not fully accepted the results of the war. But I think that is stretching history. I think it's quite fair to, to see the Klan War as an extension of the war. And as you mentioned, hopefully soon we'll get to talk about Nathan Bedford Forrest. But our time has run out for today. I would like to ask you, would you like to come back for another episode so we can talk about so much more that's in Clan War? I'll be delighted to, Stephen. There's much more to say. Fergus M. Bordewick is the author of Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant, and the Battle to Save Reconstruction, which is published by Knopf. Come back next time as we wrap up our conversation about this important story in American history. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.